reflect or solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. This is the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about leadership and management with government executives and thought leaders who are truly changing the way government does business. Welcome to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour on building a more resilient and shared supply chain strategy for the nation. I'm Michael Keegan, your host. The arrival of the COVID-19 pandemic in January of 2020 brought a new form of national disaster to the United States. Disaster and emergency events in the U.S. have typically been regional and limited in duration. Examples include hurricanes, floods, fires, earthquakes, industrial accidents, and terrorist attacks. The COVID-19 pandemic was dramatically different. Federal and state agencies were unfamiliar with how to address a disaster of this magnitude, which impacted every state in the country, every industry, every population, every hospital, and continues to do so into its third year. The pandemic revealed significant gaps in the government's response capacity to this crisis. Why is the global supply chain so vulnerable? How can a modern supply chain strategy leverage shared service models to increase efficiency and productivity? And what is supply chain immunity? I'll explore these questions and so much more with Dr. Rob Hanfield, author of Enabling a More Resilient and Shared Supply Chain Strategy for the Nation, Lessons Learned from COVID-19, a special report from the IBM Center for the Business of Government and the Shared Services Leadership Coalition. Rob, welcome back to the show. It's great to have you. It's my pleasure to be here again, Michael. Thanks so much for inviting me. Absolutely important topic. So, you know, Rob, how has COVID-19, the pandemic, how has it differed significantly in the U.S. particularly from other, you know, typical disasters or emergency events? Well, you know, I think what made COVID-19 so so impactful is that uh, it occurred to every country in the world and it impacted every industry in the world uh, and every government in the world. And it did so concurrently. So that was the one element that was uh, really different about it is, is suddenly the entire global economy was shut down. And the, the second issue is it didn't go away. It wasn't a singular event. It just dragged on and on and on, as we all know. And uh, you know that that made the the lasting effects and the lasting impacts even worse. And uh, you know most disaster and emergency uh, response agencies, from FEMA, the National Stockpile, even you know uh, our our healthcare system, they're not designed to deal with these incredibly impactful disasters that go on and on and on. They're they're good at at dealing with singular emergency events not ones that continue, um, you know, for two years. Yeah, I mean, that's important to you point out. And your report, which I think is quite timely and very insightful, reveals significant gaps in the government's response capacity to to crisis of this magnitude. Could you perhaps introduce us or outline for us some of the some of the limitations of the response that was noted in a recent state procurement official reports? Yeah, and we we also interviewed, as I as I indicated, uh, uh, chief state procurement officers in almost every state in the country. Uh, Forty seven out of fifty, I think we missed Alaska and maybe Wyoming. Um, 
But, you know, one of the things we found is that people just simply weren't prepared for this level of emergency. Um, they were they were almost frozen and um, they really weren't prepared to to they didn't have a playbook. They didn't have a plan to deal with this kind of an issue. And that's really important that you you have a plan, you have a playbook that can dictate, you know, what are the governance elements? Who does what? Uh, what is the you know what what information is required, etc. And the the second big problem was was lack of information. We we couldn't tell what was going on. We didn't know you know how much PPE there was in the country. We didn't know where the uh, ish, where the problems were occurring. There was no centralized uh, data source that was reliable and dependable in real time. And, you know, things would change in the course of eight hours, as we all know. And so we, we really didn't have good data for making decisions. And, and the third piece is you know, we didn't have the right, uh, you know, for lack of a better word, uh, expertise in how to manage supply chains. And, and now more than ever, I think we need government that has a knowledge of demand forecasting, acquisition, contracting, you know, modern warehouse management, uh, transportation management. This becomes really critical in a pandemic, and we just didn't have that. Yeah. So, you know, to provide context, Rob, what is a supply chain? And perhaps you could highlight some of the key players within this uh, dynamic we call a supply chain. Well, and, and I love this question because it's so fundamental to what, what I do and, and to what uh, you know, people need to know about. You know, for most people prior to COVID, you know, you would click on Amazon and your stuff would show up at your door. You had no idea that there was this thing called a supply chain that would get it there, right? So you'd have someone, first of all, the delivery driver, the FedEx guy who shows up. Uh, they would take it from a distribution center. There would then be either, you know, a plane or in some cases, a, a cargo ship uh, that, that would deliver that product uh, to the United States, and uh, what we didn't realize is 90% uh, of what we buy today comes from Asia, comes from China. So uh, most of the stuff that you buy on Amazon, you know, comes through this process of a driver who comes from a distribution center, who comes from the port of Los Angeles, which is delivered by an ocean carrier, uh, which comes from uh, another port across the country, probably in Shanghai, China and then a manufacturer who may be in the inbound part of China, and they have to ship it to the port. So there is, in fact, a very long series of handoffs and nodes uh, along what we call the supply chain. And when you cut that supply chain off, um, you don't. if you don't have enough inventory, you run out. And that's exactly what happened. We started running out of healthcare supplies during uh, the COVID pandemic. Yeah, it's a that's an example which we know very well. Your report does a wonderful job of identifying, Rob, certain uh, the current gaps in strengthening that supply chain you just described. I was hoping you could identify some of those gaps and how important is it to focus on you know strengthening decision making, information sharing, and expertise. Well, well, those three components are are really really important and. Uh, you know, just just by way of um, of introduction, you know, what I I actually worked on something called the Joint Acquisition Task Force during COVID, and uh, we interviewed a lot of the people in FEMA and the National Stockpile, and you know, it was incredible to me that people were completely unaware 
that the majority of their stuff came from China. So, you know, th this showed a, a, you know, a critical uh, gap there in terms of strengthening the supply chain is we need to have what I call better market intelligence. And what I mean by that is we need to understand at a minimum where our stuff comes from. And we need to understand also what's going on with in those countries where we're buying that stuff and being able to monitor those supply markets to make sure that we're not shut out, you know, we're, you know, things aren't changing over there and we're, we're on top of it. Um, that information also has to be shared. So the second piece of that is, you know, we also need to coordinate with our healthcare providers and we need to understand what is the current state that they have in terms of inventory, in terms of uh, material, um, you know, what, what's the current state of their ICUs? We're starting to see ICUs starting to fill up again. And then the, the third piece is, you know, we also have to understand medically and clinically what's happening around the world. And, and I call this a, a medical intelligence or a national healthcare monitoring system where we can understand, hey, you know, there's early signs of, you know, a, a rise in, in respiratory illnesses being admitted to uh, emergency rooms in China. Hmm, I wonder what's going on over there. Uh, there's suddenly a bunch of schools shutting down over there. Hmm, that's odd. We should look into that. So, so we need to have a better system of you know, keeping track of what's happening in terms of medical signals from around the globe. And when we have those three parts of it working together, uh, you create you know, a, a much more resilient, or what I like to call an immune uh, supply chain. I want to talk about that later in our conversation. But one thing I found interesting about your report was that um, it was based on a lot of the information that came out of it was based on a roundtable that was convened by the IBM Center for the Business of Government and the Shared Services Leadership uh, Coalition uh, to explore this concept. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about the methodology, the roundtable, uh, what were the objectives of the roundtable, and who participated, Rob? Sure. So, so, you know, we thought this is a big, a big hairy problem. So we need to bring some really smart people to the table. And, and so we brought a number of, of individuals from, from different walks of life, some, some supply chain executives. We brought a number of uh, uh, government uh, acquisition people as well, who worked in the department of defense and in, in acquisition. Uh, we also brought a number of, um, you know, people from congressional offices and house offices as well. And, and finally, we also brought some people that were, you know, lifelong uh, bureaucrats who have worked in DC and have worked on a lot of these kinds of problems. And, and we asked them to imagine, uh, well, we painted for them, first of all, a picture of the current state. And we say, well, let's, let's, uh, let's look at the problems that we had in our current state, you know, if we look back on the last year. And let's look at a desired future state. What would a world-class commercial set of capabilities look like? What attributes would these capabilities possess? And then, you know, what do we need to do to enable moving from here to there? And, and how long is it going to take? And who should lead it? And we, we got some just terrific responses from people. People were highly engaged, lots of discussion, lots of debate back and forth. We recorded all that. We went through it many times and, and tried to distill it into uh, what you see as this report here today. That's terrific, Rob. Um, you know, addressing such problems uh, of national scope, like the supply chain issues that we saw uh, come to the fore with the pandemic response, you know, you point out in your report, 
you need a whole of government approach. So I'd like you to spend a little time explaining what that term means. And, and more importantly, Rob, how do shared services strategies factor in to this type of approach and help in the development of a shared governance framework? Well, that's a great question. And, and uh, you know, I, I had never been introduced to this idea of whole of government before this workshop. And our shared services partner, uh, John Keog, and certainly educated me a great deal. And, you know, I think uh, if you look at what happened during the pandemic, um, the responses from different agencies was disconnected. Um, you know, and, and in fact, what we required was we required, you know, input from the FDA. We required input from FEMA. We required coordination with uh, the FBI. Uh, we required uh, acquisition expertise from the Department of Defense. So, you know, again, this didn't, this didn't work well because, you know, these different agencies were so siloed. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, you couldn't even get information from the FDA. There were no lines of communication going on. And in a, uh, in a shared services environment, I think what we're starting to see is we need to have a, a playbook in place and a playbook that, that you know, determines what, what is the role of each of these agencies? Who is the responsible individual who would come uh, and be part of that uh, emergency council or emergency roundtable that, uh, that would be able to help and, under, and uh, contribute? And, and this is, you know, goes back to that theme you, you talked about in terms of decision-making and information sharing. We need shared decision-making on this kind of an issue because it impacts every single agency, every single customer, every single patient, every single healthcare system out there. And as you know, it's, it's a very complex web. And so it requires that you know, we have a multi-agency um, viewpoint to look at uh, sharing information and being able to make the best decision across agencies at the same time. That's a great point. Um, Rob, would you share what a governance framework would look like for an improved government response when so many actors are required to get this happening. So what would that governance framework look like? Well, it's interesting you ask that because there was, uh, there was one written up before the pandemic uh, and it was called, it was called the, uh, the FEMCE, uh, P-H-E-M-C-E. And it was written by, uh, you know, a group of, of, of uh, you know, government officials uh, as part of the uh, uh, Assistant Secretary of Pandemic Response or the ASPR office. That 2018 document, and, and I can refer you to it if you like, takes you step by step what should be done. It talks about building, uh, you know, the appropriate stockpiles. It talks about, you know, as you say, in uh, uh, who to alert during, during this system. Uh, it talks about a governing council, who needs to be part of that council, what agencies need to be represented, uh, what are the kind of roles and responsibilities between the different parties. So it, 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 really, uh, it really provides a, you know, an excellent viewpoint of how to coordinate. Um, unfortunately, it was never executed, and that was, that was the problem. It, it, never got, it never got executed, and unfortunately, that, that really left us uh, a bit stranded. 
What are some of the key process and technology gaps affecting the global supply chain? We'll explore this question and so much more on our special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns. To support government financial performance and accountability, financial systems must meet certain standards, and relying on outdated financial systems inhibits progress. ERP vendors are encouraging clients to move to the cloud and consider new technologies such as robotic process automation, blockchain, and AI to enhance financial productivity. Download the IBM Center Report Financial Management for the Future at businessofgovernment.org to learn why and how government can evolve to meet the demands of a digital world. The Ebola crisis in West Africa from 2014 to 2016 was an epidemic that put emphasis on global capacity to respond to international disasters. How can government better assess the needs of those affected and help them? The IBM Center Report Responding to Global Health Crisis by Professor Jennifer Whitner breaks down the U.S. response to the Ebola crisis and provides insights on lessons learned that may aid the government responses in the future. Download your free copy, Responding to Global Health Crisis, at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, exploring ways to build a more resilient supply chain. My guest today is Dr. Rob Hanfield. So Rob, your report does a wonderful job of uh, identifying some of the issues affecting the supply chain. And, And one of those areas is the process issue. I was hoping you could tell us more about some of the current state issues uh, around the process for supply chain? Well, you know, I, I think, you know, when you operate a supply chain, there's, there's several processes that have to take place. First of all, you know, you have to have uh, the material available. Um, our stockpile was, was not only depleted, but um, a lot of the stuff that was in there was, was completely, um, you know, it was expired. It was the masks, you'd pull on them and the, the elastic band would snap off. So you need to have some very good, you know, inventory management systems in place to be able to track how much inventory you have to make sure you're turning that inventory and to make sure that you're, you know, reordering it on a timely basis. The second piece is knowing where to allocate that inventory when there's an emergency and where to send it and how much of it to send. And this becomes really important if you don't have enough of it. So uh, we did a study and we looked at a number of the states across the country and we found there was really no particular pattern in how they allocated inventory of PPE to these different locations. So in other words, it was sort of being done on an ad hoc basis. And so we, we think it, it's important to have some kind of methodology to be able to improve that allocation system. And the third piece is you need to have you know what we call a a control tower. And a control tower is just that. It's a summary of, of critical uh, elements that are occurring um, and that will keep people up to date. And it's just like having a, you know, a speedometer in your car. You don't want to know how fast you were going last week or 10 minutes ago. You want to understand what's going on right now. So we need to be able to link our inventory to real-time monitoring, real-time consumption, understanding you know, what's happening in the supply base, uh, what's happening to material that's in transit. And we need that kind of a dashboard that can help us understand everything that's going on so that that shared services group, that, that governing council is, is constantly aware of what's happening and can make split second decisions, react to problems as they're occurring. 
That's wonderful. The three three areas of the the process issues that you identified is is there something? I mean, your report does kind of provide uh, within each one of these areas that you found some gaps. Uh, a future state. What 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 elements need to be part of the future state? I'm wondering if you could highlight that around the process area. Sure. Well, you know, I I think that we need to start developing. Um, you know, I know there's been a number of task forces uh, in place in in Washington. Um, I've I've spoken to people on some of those task forces. Uh, there's there's also an FDA initiative to create resilient supply chains. Uh, there's a FEMA effort. The national stockpile is is going through a, a major you know redefinition. There's a lot of things you know that I see are being set in motion. What what worries me is you know it's it's problematic because I'm not I'm not sure that we're, we're getting the the critical mass required. Uh, you know, to be able to really put in these kinds of, of playbooks, the, to put in these inventory management systems, to, to bring in the right talent, uh, the acquisition talent that we need. You know, those are the things that are really going to make the difference. And, you know, people, I like to joke because I, I wrote a, a study in 2010 after the H1N1 virus uh, about called uh, planning for the inevitable, you know, the, the federal supply chain response to future pandemics. And no one read it, right? Everyone forgot about that 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 paper because, you know, things go away. You know, people go, oh, well, that was that, well, that was a near miss, or boy, that was awful, wasn't it? Well, let's move on. Well, I don't think this is something we can move on from. I think we really do need to take it seriously and continue to plan because it, it could very well happen again, unfortunately. Yes, and Rob, your point is so well taken because it may not be a pandemic. It may be something else that requires a supply chain. It doesn't necessarily have to be the tyranny of the present, which means a, a, another global pandemic. It could be any other shock to the system. And what your report points out is that when we, when we have a system or a process or a supply chain that's so interconnected and so interdependent, um, any kind of shock can requ require uh, some sort of response that needs that whole of government response. I was wondering if you, Rob, um, could talk a little bit about the idea of reshoring and why in your report you posit that reshoring or bringing uh, production manufacturing back to the nation state, in this case, the U.S., um, isn't practical or cost effective. And to what end, what can be done short of reshoring? Well, that's that's a, a question that, you know, I'm, I've got very strong opinions on and, and um, you know, it's based on on a lot of discussions with a lot of people. And, and the fact is, it would be nice if we could bring everything back to the United States and produce it here uh, in response. The fact is, we've been, you know, offshoring or, uh, you know, outsourcing to China for 20 years. And you can't just bring that all back all at once. It's, it's impossible to do that. And, you know, there are certainly some types of, of products that, you know, they, they should be made in China. They, they can be made uh, very efficiently in low-cost countries. And, uh, you know, for those, you know, there's not much we can do. That's where the supply base is. It's entrenched. It would be exceptionally difficult to economically bring those back. Uh, there, there are certain items that I would call critical supplies. And there's a few categories of those. And I think the federal government has listed a few of those, like semiconductors, uh, like, you know, critical health healthcare supplies, ventilators, 
Um, like some of, believe it or not, generic drugs. Generic drugs right now are a, a big problem in this country with, with a lot of shortages because, again, they're all made in India and, and China. Uh, for some of those, I think we need to be thinking about maybe not just reshoring, and, and reshoring means bringing it back to the U.S., but nearshoring. And by nearshoring, I mean we have a very large country south of us called Mexico, where the labor costs are now less than they are in China, if you can believe it. And if you factor in the lower transportation cost of Mexico as well, it becomes a very appealing source. Now you can get there in a day, you can have a tractor trailer back and forth, uh, assuming they're not stopped at the border. And, uh, and, and, and you know, we, we, can, we can work with, with uh, the Mexican government to address some of the other problems that the, they're having down there. So, so I think we're, we're starting to move to what I would call a nearshoring uh, scenario in the future, not necessarily reshoring. Excellent point. You know, um, Rob, would you tell us more about uh, the strategies uh, you lay out in your report that you, I guess was gleaned from the roundtable for how to handle geopolitical sort of risk mitigation related to supply chain? Well, there's 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 a lot of uh, there's a lot of risk right now, and um, you know I, I think uh, you know one of the greatest risks, of course, is 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 China, and um, you know China. Uh, most people don't realize it, but fifty percent of the semiconductors uh, sold in the world are produced on the tiny island of Taiwan, uh, and another thirty percent are produced in Korea through Samsung. Um, so, so you know, the, the world in the U.S. is highly exposed. You know, if China decides to take over Taiwan, and, and there's been threats, they're flying their jets over that, uh, that that's a huge risk. That's a huge risk uh, for the United States in all, in all aspects. Uh, so I know we're, we're starting to talk about building a semiconductor industry here in the U.S., but again, you don't do that overnight. It takes years and years and years to build a, a semiconductor supply chain. It takes three years to build a fab facility alone. So uh, this isn't something that's going to happen overnight. It's, it's going to take time. Uh, but I think what we can also start to do is to think about targeting certain industries for domestic manufacturing, for domestic production, especially in areas like healthcare. Um, I'm working with a, another lawyer at, at actually at Duke University and we're looking at how can we start to repatriate some of the generic drugs and have them domestically manufactured so we don't have drug shortages. So I think we have to start looking at uh, alternative risk mitigation approaches uh, to deal with these, these global risks that we're looking at today. Mm, great points. You know, um, there is a term that I, I noticed in your report called a national threat response system. And I was hoping maybe you could tell us a little bit more about this concept and some of the components related to it. Yeah. So again, you know, um, this this idea of a national threat response system is one that, you know, I think has been around for a while in in other sectors. Um, you know, one of those is is you know Northcom, and, and Northcom provides as the Department of Defense um, sort of command and control center uh, defending uh, America's homeland and uh, you know, deters, detects, and defeats threats to the US. And uh, something like NORTHCOM you know, can also work uh, potentially in a scenario where we have an emerging pathogen. 
Um, and, and we can provide early warning. And again, early warning is, is critical uh, through that medical intelligence. Uh, then be able to have you know, planning across agencies, uh, working with, with uh, specific individuals across agencies to assess, collect more information, uh, conduct uh, threat investigation, threat validation, and potentially you know, threat mitigation and response. The other point of a threat response system is to conduct what we call simulations. And you know, having these kinds of, of sort of tabletop exercises, what if exercises is critical to being prepared, you know, to be able to uh, you know, understand what happens if there's another pathogen released, how prepared would we be today? What would we have to put in place? How likely is that that, that could happen? And that starts to develop um, you know, identification of where the weaknesses are and where the vulnerabilities are in our, uh, in our national uh, threat response. And, and I think that allows us to be able to, uh, you know, be better prepared. And, and you know, I like, I like this term supply chain immunity. It's one that I've, I'm, you know, written about in my new book called Flow, which is coming out uh, in June. But the idea of immunity is, you know, your, your body has an immune system. And uh, you, your body's going to be prepared for different types of you know, diseases, pathogens that, that enter it, viruses. And uh, immediately, you know, it has these T cells that recognize, oh, I've seen this before. I know what this is. And, and they're able to kind of respond to it. And, and I think that's what we need is we need to have a system that is more immune, is, is, is able to be better prepared for new threats that might be on the horizon. That's great. Yeah, I I want to actually talk to you later about the uh, the, the specifics of the, of that concept, supply chain immunity, and maybe it's a, at that time it's a good a good way to give a, like a heads up on uh, on your uh, your new book coming out in June, Flow. So that's a that's great. Um, you know, Rob, you we just talked about the process issues that you identified that uh, you know currently affect the supply chain. And we talked about some of the current state issues, but also where things would benefit from a future state. I'm talking about the technology issues now. So from process to technology, would you highlight, Rob, some of the key supply chain technology issues that you identified? Uh, absolutely. And uh, I think I can summarize in one word, uh, visibility. Right? Um, we didn't have any, any material visibility within the national stockpile. Uh, to we didn't even know where the inventory was. You know, I interviewed some people and they they shared with me how, you know, when material was was inbound, uh, people were taking pictures of it with their cell phones and uploading it to a, you know, a SharePoint because they didn't have basic barcode technology to track where the stuff was. Right, so it's incredible to hear that. But uh, I, my my jaw jaw just dropped when I heard that. <laughs> Um, but, you know, again, we, we need to invest in technology for uh, our national response system, for our national stockpile, for our ASPR. And, you know, that, that requires that we have, uh, you know, some level of, of real-time monitoring of inventory. We invest in barcode technology. It's not expensive. We need to, to have the collection systems that would collect that, that inventory uh, and then we need to have um, a crosswalk to the hospitals. And I've, I've worked with a couple of companies. I worked with SAS and they worked with the German government. You know, the German government could see exactly how many patients they had in every ICU in the country. They were able to collect that level and that granularity of data 
to better help their allocation, their inventory management. We don't have that today. We're running blind. Our, our hospital network has no idea of, of, you know, doesn't have the data to share with the government of, you know, what's our inventory levels. Are we, are we short, critically short on any materials? How many patients are we coming in? What's happening in our ECUs? What kinds of cases are we seeing in those ECUs? You know, that's all data that, that we need to be able to monitor, um, you know, if, if we're going to be effective in, in managing these, these future threats. And uh, today, again, there's, there's no visibility. And, uh, you know, it, it's problematic, um, but I, I think uh, people say, well, we don't want the government, you know, con you know, looking into our databases and monitoring us. It's not about monitoring. It's about, you know, being able to respond to, to a threat. So I think those investment in those kinds of cloud-based systems, they're not expensive, uh, but it's something that getting agreement, I think, is going to be the critical on, on how to deploy some of this technology. Hey, Ro, can I ask a follow-up on this one? That uh, Why is there a difference? Is it a cultural thing between like what was what your example about uh, about Germany and having that that intel, that traceability, that uh, visibility, as you referred to it as, uh, and we don't. Is is there an investment issue? Is it a cultural thing? Could you elaborate more on that? Sure. Well, it, there's a simple answer. There's one healthcare provider in Germany, and that's Germany. <laughs> <laughs> so it is. It's a it's a structural. Okay. The national healthcare system. So yeah, they they absolutely can dictate those terms to hospitals. Um, but you know, we do have a very large provider here, CMS which, um, you know, supports uh, Medicare for and Medicaid for, you know, it's now almost 80% of the population last time I looked. So, so I, I think that, you know, we need to be able to work with our providers uh, and CMS is one way to do that, to, to start to put requirements onto them and, and they're going to claim that they're onerous and that they're, you know, it takes too much time, et cetera. But if we equip them with the right systems, I think I think we could make that a requirement. That's great. It's a nice segue into my next question, which is around, it's still in the technology area and, it, and it's not sort of the current state, but more of the future state. And you kind of alluded to it, I think a couple of, in a couple of times in your response there, but I was wondering if you could elaborate more on what your report says around the technology gaps and, and what, what, what are certain core elements of the future? Well, I, I think, um, you know, as, as I said, having, having um, that visibility is, is going to become really critical. Um, I, I think, you know, we also need to have uh, investments in a, uh, uh, you know, in an in a early warning system, as I said, you know, validation of medical threats using, you know, tangible multi-indicator analyses. So having a, a branch of government that is dedicated to medical intelligence, um, but then, you know, what do you do with that information? Well, you know, if you if you have different pathogens and biological threats, you need uh, people to be, to be able to say, well, where is this going to occur, and how would these pathogens travel into the U.S.? So, you know, if you notice, a lot of the uh, early early COVID cases occurred in large cities with large airports that were flying from overseas. You know, Orlando, Chicago, New York, L.A. That's how pathogens travel today is through airborne travel. So we should be able to model that. And then we should be able to put in rapid measures in those cities and those healthcare systems to track and, and you know, put an end to, to any of these, these pathogen spreads that start to occur before they occur. 
I think the other thing is, is you know, we need to have more analytics. And, and again, I point to another existing program, Warstopper, you know, which can provide analytical support to look at uh, supplier capacity, to look at, you know, what's happening in supply chains, to be able to, you know, map out, you know, where there's potential supply issues or problems on the horizon. And, you know, circle that back around with our current and future state uh, to start to work on risk mitigation uh, things to th that can be put into place. All good insights. You know, uh, your report, Rob, also, uh, I think it suggests, I, I, at least I inferred from it, that there's a suggestion in the report that uh, the government possibly should move away from the idea of simply increasing the strategic national stockpile SNS, and think more in terms of a strategic national sourcing framework, which I found compelling. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about that and what does that entail? Well, it, it, it does uh, require, when you look at, at how uh, industrial companies source and, and manage it, you know, they dedicate people who do what's called uh, category intelligence that understand you know, deeply what's happening in these markets. Uh, who are able then to develop strategies by category around, you know, what suppliers should we be sourcing from? How much inventory should we be holding? Where should we be holding that inventory? So there's a whole set of capabilities around sourcing and managing supply chains. Uh, the SNS doesn't do that. They've got great people that are sort of like inventory clerks. I mean, they're 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 managing the inventory, but they're not acquisition or sourcing specialists. And that's really what we need. Um, I think, you know, another thing we can think about is you know, leveraging some of the resources, the incredible resources the government has. Um, you know, the, the U.S. Air Force has all of these capabilities. We don't have to go very far. In fact, I think we could probably utilize Air Force intelligence, uh, you know, acquisition officers to staff something like this and uh, create a center and, and just to be able to monitor everything that's going on that are critical supplies for this country. What is supply chain immunity? We'll explore this question and so much more when our special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns. How does an agency decide upon and implement a performance management framework that will be successful for their specific administration? The IBM Center Report, a practitioner's framework for measuring results, follows the implementation and results of the CSTAT management framework in Colorado's Department of Homeland Security in hopes that it can guide others who may want to institute a similar approach. Download a practitioner's framework for measuring results by Melissa Wavelet on businessofgovernment.org today. Agile methodology has allowed for agencies to keep up with the growing demands for fast response to problem solving. The Opportunity Project, TOP, serves as a catalyst in adapting agile techniques to solve complex agency mission problems. TOP works with federal agencies to identify challenges and facilitate iterative approaches in response. In the IBM Center Report, Agile Problem Solving in Government, Joel Gurin and Katerina Ribello discuss the factors of success involved in TOP. Download your free copy today at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, exploring ways to build a more resilient supply chain. My guest today is Dr. Rob Hanfield. If there was ever a reason or, or, or a catalyst to do that, to do what you're suggesting, it has to be 
the, the the after effect of the COVID response. I mean, if there's no other trigger to move that in that direction, I mean, we, we're we, people are basically the 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 way we work and engage is transformed since COVID. The way we stockpile or keep really essential things should should also change. I think that's a a very important um, part of your report. Um, it almost begs to have its own special report with some some sort of uh, you know suggestion around leveraging what the successes of the of the Air Force and and how that would work. But Rob, you know, in the previous segment, you mentioned your new book, uh, Flow, which is due out in June of twenty. 22. I was wondering, uh, you kind of at a high level discussed your concept of supply chain immunity, the T cells, and and having that baked in and knowing how to pivot and adapt to any type of shock to the system. Could you elaborate, maybe give us a preview of flow and how it really kind of triumphs your um, your idea of, of supply chain immunity? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um... So it's a it's a it's a different book. It's not your standard off the you know off the shelf supply chain book, um, and and you know what Tom Linton, my co-author, who was the former chief supply chain officer at Flex, and I began to observe is that you know supply chains sort of have uh, you know rules and behavioral characteristics that really mimic some of the rules that we see in physics, and we when we started looking at physics, you know we. We observed how, you know, there's there's natural flows that occurs in physics. There's flows of water. There's flows of electricity. There's flows of compression and power. Um, and and uh, you know, when you start looking at at these these laws of flow, you you notice that you know things always flow down to their uh, lowest point of gravity, right? In in, uh, in in the natural world. And I think what we're seeing today is a major shift in the flow of how supply chains operate. And, uh, you know, in the past, you know, we've, we've, we've flowed to China. A lot of our trade has gone to China and to Asia. And, and today we're starting to see that we're really rethinking. Organizations are redesigning their supply chains. Uh, people are rethinking, you know, maybe the lowest cost is not equated with the lowest price in China. Maybe the lowest cost is, you know, actually having it on hand and having a manufacturer who's, you know, within the same continent and, and can, you can order from and the transportation cost is lower. And, and we're seeing this everywhere right now with the proliferation of shortages. Uh, you know, these shortages, by the way, are not going to end in 2022. They're going to go on well into 2023 and uh, likely in some categories like semiconductors into 24. And, and so I, I think what this requires is that we start rethinking how our supply chains flow and, and we start uh, redesigning them in such a way that we're, we're, we're rebuilding a, a new capability. And, and this capability I call supply chain immunity. And, and the idea is that we need to be able to withstand these shocks, better predict them, be better prepared for them and, and know what to do when they occur. That's great. I, I, I want to um, have you back on when that book comes out. I'd really like to delve into it. Um, so, Rob, we talked about the process gaps. We've talked about the technology gaps. I'd like to talk about the policy implementation issues you identified in your book. Perhaps you could highlight those around the supply chain. What are some of the policy implementation issues? I think, you know, there are several issues where 
you know, again, the, the disparate communication among the agencies really became apparent. And so I think what we need is, is we need a, uh, a policy in place for when these things occur, that there is um, some kind of a, a, an approach for bringing together representatives with some governance structure around decision-making that can cross agencies that, that can kind of overrule certain types of issues. Um, the other big issue, of course, is the Defense Production Act, which was uh, utilized many, many times. Um, I think within the DPA, I think we need to be thinking about supporting domestic manufacturing. Um, I, I, we, I was on a call last week with the White House talking about N95. I'm on the board of, a, of Project N95, a, a nonprofit that's seeking to build domestic capability for N95 masks. You know, right now, 60% of the KN95s in this country are counterfeit. They don't work. Um, so, so we really need to be thinking about building a, a domestic manufacturing capability for critical stuff like PPE. And then I think, last of all, we need to have a, a better equitable policy system for distribution in the event of an emergency. And, and you know, we have, we have many different facilities. Everybody needs... Everybody needed masks, everybody needed gowns, everybody needed gloves. How do we allocate? What's the priority for allocation of those, those, those goods during an emergency? Those, those policies just did not exist, were not in place during the pandemic. And I think we, we need to have people thinking about those. Uh, so Rob, it looked like uh, from reading your report, the roundtable participants you know, noted that for example, the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response within HHS, uh, Health and Human Services, may not be the best uh, place to host the strategic national stockpile. I was wondering, perhaps you could talk a little bit about that. But more importantly, Rob, given what you learned, whether your interviews or roundtable participants' contribution, what other organizational adjustments were suggested uh, from this effort? You know, I think one of the things that we saw was that, um, you know, ASPR has kind of moved around a little bit over the years. And I've, I've actually spoken to, um, you know, the prior uh, assistant secretary who, who worked there during the Obama administration. And, uh, you know, I, I think that, that it's a very, very much a, a sort of a clinical office. Um, it, you know, the national stockpile was originally formulated as a response to um, you know different kinds of threats like anthrax or you know biological attacks, so they were they were sort of designed to deal with these these clinical biological emergencies, and they have you know for instance most of their holdings were for anthrax vaccines during COVID prior to COVID, so so they they clearly weren't prepared, they weren't holding the right stuff, so so I think we need to populate. Um, you know, the ASPR office and the SNS with, as I said, people that have a better understanding of supply markets, not just clinicians. I think clinicians have an important role, um, but, but using cl clinicians to better understand what types of materials would be required under a pandemic scenario, under different types of pandemic scenarios. For instance, you know, we had uh, shortages of things like propofol and, and other uh, intubation drugs that were really critical during COVID. Uh, we didn't have enough of those and, and nobody knew, you know, until it was too late. Um, if we had, you know, uh, people that were looking at those kinds of scenarios 
uh, looking at future state, you know, they might be able to predict, well, you know, we're going to have to, you know, bulk up on certain types of materials and certain types of drugs uh, for different kinds of scenarios instead of investing in stuff that we don't need that we're not going to use, you know, like anthrax vaccines. Very good point. You know, um, one of the biggest challenges ahead for government involves ensuring improved data sharing, which you point out between agencies. Did the roundtable offer any recommendations to enhance data sharing? Well, well, we did. Um, we we absolutely. You know, data sharing is is one of those things. It's it's uh, it's kind of on everybody's wish list, um, but it never really happens. And you know, there's a variety of reasons for that. You know, it, you know, on the other side, you have sort of cybersecurity issues that are preventing people from wanting to share too much data. But I, I think, you know, what we need to think about is not just sharing all data, but let's focus on the right kinds of data that we need. Let's, let's be very specific and targeted in terms of the kinds of data required that we to, to respond in a pandemic or an emergency. And uh, let's make sure that we have what we call data governance, data standards, data quality, that uh, the, the data is in a form where it's, it's uploaded regularly, it's, it's clean, it's standardized. You know, we can reference, cross-reference the same information from different agencies and, um, and then put it into what we call a data warehouse. And I think a data warehouse is, you know, a secure location where the data is regularly updated and, it's, and it becomes trusted data. And if you can start to trust your data, you can act on it. Uh, today, people either didn't have the data or if they, if they did have it, they didn't trust it. It was too old. So, so we, have to, we have to really focus on that kind of, of data sharing, that targeted data quality and data governance for, for certain kinds of critical data that we require. That's great, Rob. Considering... Uh, the discussion under the future state section of the report. Um, I was hoping you could highlight some key recommendations that uh, emerge from the roundtable uh, around what we're looking at here with supply chain. Well, you know, and, and uh, you know, for me, this was just such a great exercise to work on this, this report. And, um, you know, we, we did come up with a number of recommendations and I, you know, I really hope that, that, you know, some government agencies will read, read this or, and maybe think about it. But I think, um, you know, there's a number of them that came out. First of all, I think we need to look at some new government strategies targeted at supporting a domestic stopgap manufacturing capability. We don't need to have all of our stuff produced here, but maybe let's put in some targeted contracts to get, a, you know, require 10% of uh, healthcare supplies to be manufactured domestically. Uh, I think, you know, as I said, we need to put in uh, and ensure visibility through common data standards across uh, agencies, particularly for critical inventory, and and to maintain that uh, stockpile portfolio of of stuff in the SNS in a in a format that's updated. Uh, one possibility is you could even you know, use existing facilities like the VA, VAs all over the country. They have warehouses. We could use those warehouses to store that, those materials and turn them. Uh, I think we need to certainly invest in critical infrastructure, you know, semiconductors, and uh, I would argue uh, N95 masks, are, I think are important. 
I think we need to establish a uh, medical intelligence uh, national threat response system to provide early warning, uh, to monitor supply markets, and to create a shared service capability that uh, allows people to communicate across agencies and manage these, these categories of critical items. And I also think we need to you know, reach out to our healthcare system to have improved healthcare monitoring uh, and, and then to be able to uh, you know, use that, that trusted supply of network, uh, of network providers as indicators you know, of what's happening in the, mar in the, uh, uh, in the ecosystem. And, and lastly, I think we're, we're gonna have to you know, maybe develop national contracts to uh, require manufacturers to, to uh, reserve quantities to supplement the SNS, distributors, uh, healthcare providers. I think what we're seeing right now is healthcare providers are throwing a lot of inventory uh, on the shelf. There's some of them have six months of inventory. I don't think that's the solution. Um, that stuff is gonna expire. So we, we've got to come up with a, a national plan to deal with this. And, and I think maybe a, a board or a task force uh, should, should be put in place to, to try to enable this. And it, it's a lot of work, as you can see. I don't expect this to go on overnight. Yeah, and you know, Rob, one of the things I wanted to broach with you, um, sort of a little bit off topic, but kind of dovetails with all the work you, you did for this report. And, and the focus, obviously, uh, was was deeply um, you know around uh, the healthcare uh, angle, given this was a pandemic, and the essential tools and, and uh, PPEs, as you pointed out, um, were obviously in the beginning uh, so poorly planned. But my point is, what if it's not? What if the next shock to the system isn't a pan a global pandemic, but something else? that does have an impact on a supply chain. Is there, was there any discussion uh, more broadly away from a particular pandemic or a particular healthcare crisis? Well, you, of, you know, of course the Russian Ukraine um, invasion was, was a big issue. Um, it, it didn't come up, you know, in November, but it, you know, it, it, it's certainly come up since then. And, you know, what we realized uh, from that is we're in such connected global supply chains today. Uh, you know, the fallout from that war is such that, uh, you know, the Ukraine and Russia provided a huge uh, volume of wheat and barley to the world uh, healthcare, world food system. Uh, we're seeing massive increases in wheat prices. And in, in all probability, Michael, we're going to be seeing famine conditions in many countries this summer. It's, it's, it's going to be bad. And uh, so, so it may not affect us directly. You know, we'll, we'll definitely pay more at the grocery store, but I think uh, USAID is, is going to have to help here with, with some of these countries because it's going to be, it's going to be really bad. And, and likewise, you know, future state, you know, wars, uh, biological threats, you know, they're all, they're all issues we need to prepare for. And unfortunately in this, in the world we're in today. So uh, Rob, as we close, I would like to, I had a question here, but I probably, it's probably even a larger question around um, what's the future hold in this area around supply chain immunity, supply chain response, and building a supply chain that can weather whatever the next shock is? 
Well, I can tell you it, it is the number one issue on everybody's plate right now is this idea of supply chain resilience or you know, managing uncertainty in the future. Uh, everybody I talk to is, is, is facing these incredible shortages right now of, of everything. We, you know, if you look at prices of every single uh, thing out there, lumber, uh, groceries, uh, lithium, steel, they are all at world record prices. We have never seen prices this high. So, so I think you know, inflation is, is, is a very much of a reality as we saw in the Fed's decision, but it's, it's gonna be ongoing. It's likely something that we're gonna be faced with for a couple of years. And we're gonna see a period of high inflation and high shortages. Imagine that, right? So that's, that's gonna be a, a razor's edge of, of, of problems there that I think we're likely gonna face in the next couple of years. And, you know, not to get off topic a little bit, but the, the, the argument one could make from a textbook is the reason why there's high inflation is because there are shortages. But you're saying that they're, they're not necessarily a tautology of that sort. It's, it's basically both happening at the same time for whatever, whatever reasons uh, that underlie each one. Interesting conversation, Rob. Uh, look forward to your book when it comes out. I'd love to have you back on the program. Uh, if you're inclined, and we can we can talk about flow. Uh, I want to thank you for your time today. And more importantly, I want to thank you for your work for the IBM Center. My pleasure. And as always, um, I, I'd love to come back uh, in June. So I'll look you up. Thank you. This has been a special edition of the Business of Government Hour on building a more resilient supply chain with Dr. Rob Hanfield, author of Enabling a More Resilient and Shared Supply Chain Strategy for the Nation. Lessons Learned from COVID-19, a special report from the IBM Center for the Business of Government and the Shared Services Leadership Coalition. You can download this and all center reports at businessofgovernment.org. Be sure to join us next time for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government leadership and its effectiveness. Until then, subscribe, download, or listen to the entire interview at Podcast One, iTunes, or on your favorite podcast app. And as always, that businessofgovernment.org. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. How can government best use big data to transform decision-making, public services delivery, and communication? The IBM Center Report, Integrating Big Data and Thick Data to Transform Public Services Delivery, by Yan Yan Ang presents five recommendations for public managers introducing the concept of mixed analytics, urging thick data, meaning qualitative information about users, to be presented alongside big data to improve government decision-making. Visit businessofgovernment.org to read more. News impacting feds and contractors, plus Mike Causey's unique perspective on pay, benefits, and retirement. Subscribe to the Morning Federal Report at Federal News Network. WFED Washington, WTOP-FM HD2 Washington, W283DG Sterling, WTLP-FM HD2 Braddock Heights Frederick. Federal News Network is the news organization of record for the federal community. We are nonpartisan, nonpolitical, and our job is to help federal government and contracting executives make informed decisions.
We inform federal managers, contractors, and policymakers on issues related to the federal workforce, management, and acquisition. Pay benefits in retirement, the Defense Department, and federal IT. Portions pre-recorded. Nights and weekends, we air Washington Nationals, Capitals, and Wizards, and the Navy Midshipmen. We are the Washington, D.C. home of Navy Athletics. Download the Federal News Network app on the App Store or Google Play Store. Play Federal News Network on Alexa. Check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Federal News Network. Our mission is helping you meet your mission.